the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those of you who don't know about this show, the show's in two parts. The first part of the show, and they're not equal parts, so let's not get too excited here when, <laughs> when people say, call me up and, and say, wait a minute, uh, you didn't spend enough time in estate planning. <laughs> and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion. Today, we're going to be talking about history. We're going to be listening to General John Scales, who's got a book about Nathan Bedford Forrest as a military commander. Let's get back to the estate planning. Beth, do we have any questions? Well, we have one. A a lovely Italian lady um, spoke to me the other day, and she said she has no children. She has cousins. That's all that all of her family, and she wants to leave what she has to her cousins. Some of her cousins are in Queens, um, but she also has cousins in Italy. Um, she knows she needs to make a will. Um, she doesn't know if she needs a trust. So can you help her? Her name's Mary. Well, here's the question. First, everybody needs a will. And of course, Mary needs a will because assuming there are no relatives closer than cousins, her assets would be divided equally among her respective cousins on on different sides of the family. So if she doesn't want that to happen, she needs a will. That's the first step. Now, here's the problem. If when Mary dies, she has assets in her name alone, the will would have to go through probate. If it goes through probate, all her cousins in Italy or all her first cousins would have to be officially notified and given an opportunity to contest the will. So If she wants to avoid that, make it easier for her relatives here in in Queens, then she may want to think about a trust, especially if she owns real estate. And the idea behind a trust, the assets automatically pass to the people named in the trust, a lot like an insurance policy, a lot like an annuity. The person's named as beneficiaries on the trust agreement can close out the trust agreement a few days after she's gone with a death certificate. There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. We don't have to notify the, the cousins in Italy and say, what's what's the big deal about notifying the cousins in Italy? Well, one, we may not be able to find them. And a lot of times, you know, if you have a, you're, you're part of Italy where 
maybe some of the records were destroyed by the war and you can't get complete records and everybody in the town has the same last name or a lot of people in the town have the same last name. It could take years and years to track down all the relatives. And then we're assuming they're not going to contest the will, but every one of them, one of them has a right to contest the will. And you might say, well, why do they want to contest the will? Because they contest the will, they can hold everything else and get a nuisance settlement, if nothing else, which still might be a few dollars. Ordinarily, we want to avoid probate if we have missing relatives or scattered relatives or numerous relatives where it's going to take a, a, you know, a big job to put everything together. And that's when you want to avoid probate. When you go through probate, everybody who's your next of kin by law must be officially notified and be given the opportunity to contest the will. And then, you know, when I explain that to some clients every once in a while, I say, wait, 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 wait a minute. I've never seen my cousin in, in Italy. How can they contest my will? Believe me, they can't. Anybody who's next of tank can contest the will, and some people are savvy enough to know that they put in objections to the will, they'll get a settlement because it'll be easier to pay them off than to go through two, three, four years in court. So believe me, if you have missing relatives, you have scattered relatives, you want to avoid probate. You avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. If you own real estate, the best way to avoid probate is through a trust agreement. Now, you can avoid probate in other ways if, if through annuities, insurance policies with beneficiaries, but you got to be careful because still you need somebody in charge to pay your last bills, to take care of your funeral, to close out your apartment or whatever. And that's the executor under the will. And that's why everybody should have a will. You know, every once in a while I hear somebody from a bank or financial planner say, you don't need a will. All your assets have beneficiaries. That may be true, but there's so many things that you could use a will for. One of the things is to close out the apartment. A cousin does not have a right to close out the apartment. The police put a seal against the apartment. You die in the apartment. You die in your house. Police put a seal up. It's a lot easier to get that seal removed with the will than if you have scattered relatives around the country and no will, because then you might have to go through the public administrator. They're not going to want to do the job because there's no money in the estate. Believe me, it's a mess. And then some of the furniture might get lost, some of the belongings. Maybe it doesn't have a great financial value, but maybe it has a sentimental value, grandma's picture or whatever, and, and that could be lost. So everybody should have a will. If you want to avoid probate, if you own real estate, you want to do a trust agreement. If you have assets that are not in real estate, the question is you may want to do a trust agreement depending on how many people you want to name and do you want somebody in charge or do you just put beneficiaries on those accounts? And, and those are one of the things we talk over. But in any event, when you have scattered relatives, we don't want to go through court. We don't want to go through probate. You want to avoid probate. You avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough has his listeners call in or write in or email in like we're doing now and asking us a question about estate planning. And we answer, we answer that question each Thursday for Kevin McCullough on a show, which broadcasts Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. On Wednesdays, he does a double hour with uh, John Katzimatidis. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough, and every week we promise you that we're going to answer one of your questions as posed to Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan. You know they are the very best in all the tri-state area when it comes to dealing with estate care and elder law and also end-of-life uh, issues like how to pass on your assets to those uh, that uh, are, are left behind. Now, this is kind of a, a modern question, uh, Mike, but uh, an anonymous uh, asker uh, wrote in and said, Hi, I'm a social media influencer. Can you you tell me how I can protect my digital assets, Mike Connors. Yeah, well, you know, part of the question is, and that's something that's coming up that's just occurred over the last few years. You know, somebody has some digital assets, they have a password. Ordinarily, you can't get access to, through that without a password. And so now we're putting clauses in wills and trusts where it, you get a court order to access those digital assets. 
you know, it's part of the law that really wasn't there, you know, 10 years ago. And, and it is something different. But, it, you know, we've updated our wills where every will right now has that our digital assets can be accessed by the executor. And so the court can easily access or sign a court order to, to allow you to get access to those documents. Which is really vital uh, at the end of the day. Um, yeah, because let, let's say somebody has a book. You know, it's they've got it protected by a password. It's it's not easy to access that without the password. You know, the FBI, you know, had problems accessing passwords of terrorists. Yeah, well, and, and you always talk about, Mike, the uh, biggest failure is the failure to plan. Um, and, uh, friends, that's what we don't want you to do. So if you're listening today and you think, hey, I've got to I've got to revisit my will and I should really like take a look at some of the things that uh, we're just talking about. Call their office. Seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. The entire crew is standing by ready to help. Seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. You can also ask Mike Connors a question by writing ask Mike Connors at Gmail dot com and then be listening Saturday morning at eight o'clock on a. AM 570 The Mission, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. We're going to be talking. A sh- we're going to be taking a short break right now and be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, fellas. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown. Town Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is General John Scales, who wrote a book about one of the most controversial generals of the American Civil War, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you. Nathan Bedford Forrest, one, who was he? And two, why did you decide to write a book about his campaigns? To talk about who he was, he was essentially the poor boy made good. His, uh, his family was very poor. 
uh, he was born in Tennessee. Uh, his father, he was the oldest and his father died when he was still a young teenager and he had to support the family. Uh, he first moved uh, to work for his uncle in uh, horse trading and learned that. And uh, by this time they had moved to Mississippi and then he was successful at that. So he branched out into what was the most lucrative market, slave trading. And then from that branched out into property and became actually one of the richest men in Tennessee before age 40. He served as alderman twice in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and was a very prominent citizen. And then, of course, uh, when the war came, uh, he signed up as a private and he ended up as a lieutenant general. Uh, his opponent, uh, General Sherman, uh, thought that he was, in fact, one of the most extraordinary people that uh, was in the war on either side. So I'm sitting here retired. Uh, I've read uh, biographies of him, as of many other uh, Civil War characters. Uh, but I happened to live in an area where everything he did was within 300 miles. And I'm also extremely interested in why was he so extraordinary? How did he do this? And what were the surrounding circumstances? So therefore, you're, uh, you can get a lot of biographies, but the biographies don't necessarily have that sort of detail. You know, why it really happened, how it unfolded, what, uh, what led to this, that, and the other. So uh, I couldn't find the book that I wanted to read, so I ended up writing one. Did General Forrest have any military background before the war? No. Um, I caveat that very slightly by saying that he actually volunteered uh, for the Mexican War. And he joined a unit. But uh, by the time that the unit got to uh, Texas, they fell apart and they weren't needed anymore. The war was over. So he had to work his way to get back home. <laughs> that doesn't sound like that much of a background. You know, that's not much of a resume to become a lieutenant general. So he enlists as a private. How does he become an officer? Well, it's very easy. I told you he was one of the most prominent guys in uh, in Tennessee, one of the wealthiest. So, of course, the governor, Isham Harris, knew exactly who he was. And he heard that he'd signed up as a private, and he sent him a letter. And I wouldn't doubt that there was some sort of uh, <laughs> underground correspondence anyway. But he offered him a commission as a lieutenant colonel if he undertook to raise a battalion of cavalry. So he did. What's his first action? Well, the first action was a uh, actually a an encounter with a a gunboat on the river. Uh, he tried to ambush a uh, a tin clad gunboat that was uh, moving up and down the river, and uh, he had a four pounder cannon which was inadequate to the purpose. But he tried to ambush it. The gunboat was warned, so they exchanged fire, and neither side ended up drawing any blood at all. Uh, the, the The gunboat was called the Conestoga. All right, uh, 
But anyway, and that was on the Cumberland River is what I'm talking about. So that was his first action, but that was really not much. Um, the first time that he actually clashed with a Union Army detachment was in the village of Sacramento, Kentucky. This was in December of 1861, and he managed to uh, disperse the detachment. Uh, he actually outnumbered them. Uh, there were about 150 to 160 Union soldiers, and he had over 200 guys, although because he had gotten advance word they were there, he had galloped his horses, and when he first got there, he was outnumbered. And the Union Arm, uh, Cavalry Unit attacked him. And uh, But meanwhile, some more of his guys were coming up, so he launched seemingly instinctively what's called a double envelopment. He sent guys around to each side, and as soon as the Union Cavalry saw that, then he charged right down the middle, and they broke and ran. So what's the next step? I guess we got Fort Donaldson, or was that it? Well, that's... Uh, that was the next major thing. He, he actually patrolled that that frontier in Kentucky um, for a couple of months. When Fort Henry fell, the uh, units that he belonged to, he actually was attached to General Clark, who was in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Uh, they were all ordered to Fort Donaldson. And so that was his next major action. So what was his activity, you know, in the Fort Donaldson campaign? When he arrived, uh, he was actually the senior uh, cavalry commander there, so he assumed command of the cavalry. Uh, meanwhile, General Grant was moving cross-country between Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson, Fort Henry being on the Tennessee River and Fort Donaldson being on the Cumberland River, but they're relatively close together there. So he arrived there, and his first activity was uh, he drove off a scouting party uh, of Union Cavalry, and then the next day, uh, the main body of the Union Army started appearing, so he launched a delay action that delayed uh, a infantry brigade with attached cavalry and artillery. It delayed their movement forward for some time, and then he was ordered back into the entrenchments after that. After that, uh, he he deployed his guys against some sharpshooters. He observed the uh, the Fort Donaldson cannon turning back the Union fleet. And uh, then when the Confederates tried to break out of Fort Donaldson, uh, he was on the far left flank of the attack. Now, uh, he didn't really have much opposition there, although uh, the first shot was fired at one of his cavalrymen. And as the attack advanced, and it was successful for a while, he was pinched out, more or less. On his left, there was a, a stream that was flooded. And so he had to kind of circle around, and he helped uh, take a battery and uh, also help the attack of the infantry for a while. That attack was successful, but there was some misunderstanding um, between the general officers involved, uh, only uh, one of which was particularly competent. And um, so while they were arguing what to do, Grant arrived on the scene. He had been uh, over with the riverboats uh, a distance away and uh, restored part of the position. So anyway, when that was discovered, uh, the general sat around and said, well, 
we think we're going to have to surrender. It was very cold. Uh, there had been some snow and the ground was frozen, and they didn't think their guys could survive because they'd have to get out through the swamps. Well, Forrest asked, hey, uh, he asked General Pillow, who was one of the generals, and said, I want permission to break out. I didn't bring my people here to surrender. And so he did, and he, in the main, in the middle of that, found that Grant had not yet restored a complete siege of Fort Donaldson, that there was still an open pathway out. But anyway, he, he and his uh, most of his men made it out. A few of them didn't get the word. When do you believe that Forrest really started to show his greatness, or when did people recognize it? Well, that was his first real claim to fame right there, uh, breaking out of Donaldson. And so his, his uh, name became known. I would say that uh, he was just known as one of a number of very successful uh, Confederate cavalry generals for quite a while. Now, uh, nothing he had done up to this point had any real effect on the larger war itself, as you might imagine. Um, but fairly soon afterwards, uh, well, he fought at Shiloh. Um, Nothing really uh, extraordinary there one way or another, except he covered the retreat after the two days of Shiloh. The next day after that, he was part of the rear guard. And General Sherman was the guy in charge of, uh, of uh, pursuit. And so there was a, a small engagement called Fallen Timbers, which was the only time they actually met on the battlefield. Of course, Sherman had overwhelming uh, power. He had a couple of brigades, and Forrest had only 300 cavalrymen. But uh, he managed, uh, Forrest managed to disperse his advance guard and came very close to capturing or killing Sherman. And Sherman made the comment after the war uh, that had, had Forrest not run out of, uh, uh, of uh, rounds in his pistol before he got to him, that would have been the end of Sherman's war. But uh, he still wasn't very famous. But he was recognized as a very active and capable officer at the cavalry regiment level, which by this time he was a regimental commander. Um, but he got picked to be a brigadier general of cavalry under special circumstances. East Tennessee was uh, occupied by the Confederacy, but uh, that, that summer, that we're talking the summer of 1862, uh, it was under threat by almost five times the number of Union soldiers moving slowly towards Chattanooga. Uh, and the Confederate cavalry in that region, four regiments, were all bickering with each other. The colonels were bickering with each other, and no one was in charge. They said, well, we need a good, we need a good guy and make him a general and put him over this. And so... Forrest's name came up. Several people recommended him, and um, he went to East Tennessee and took over the cavalry there. And probably one of the most important things he did, which is not well known, is uh, he was given the mission of delaying this Union Army, this almost 50,000 people headed toward Chattanooga for a month. And he accomplished that by operating behind Union lines for an entire month. Uh, he took Murfreesboro, he raided against Nashville, and he stayed back there. And it so occupied the commander, uh, General Buell, that uh, between that and trying to keep the railroads repaired and, and upgrading them, 
that Buell made almost no further progress towards Chattanooga until uh, a Confederate army was able to arrive there. So he didn't necessarily become famous because of that, but it was an extraordinary stroke because instead of falling, uh, Chattanooga falling as it would have uh, in late summer of 1862, it did not fall for a year until a year later. General Scales, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, talking to General John Scales on Nathan Bedford Forest. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. He will be arguably the most, one of the most controversial soldiers in the Civil War, one of the best soldiers in the Civil War if he's on your side. Personally, in battle, he will, this is in hand-to-hand confrontation, he will kill at least 30 men. He will even kill one of his officers that tries to assassinate him. And he kills you in a way you don't like to die. That was one of our favorite historians, Ed Bars, commenting on Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is the subject of our interview with General John Scales. Let's maybe get to one of the most controversial parts, you know, later on in the war. Fort Pillow. What can you tell mm-hmm. the listening audience about Fort Pillow, and, and what do you think was the truth of the matter? All right. Fort Pillow was a occupied outpost on the Mississippi River. It had originally been built uh, to be defended by 10,000 people, and, and it had been built by the Confederacy. Uh, Sherman had ordered it abandoned because it was not serving any useful purpose, but uh, because it was used to smuggle cotton, 
obviously in high demand in the north for the cotton for the uh, mills up there, uh, that order somehow had not been carried through. There were two union uh, units at Fort Pillow. There was a U.S. Colored Troops, uh, six artillery, uh, had a few people less than 300 soldiers. They stayed basically at the fort and manned the artillery pieces that were on the high ground above the river. There were another 300 or so, 13th Tennessee U.S., who were doing, uh, who were basically marauding against the countryside is the best way to put it. Uh, they had a fairly bad reputation, and they were the ones that were grabbing the cotton. They were, uh, there's a lot associated with them. So the uh, Fort Pillow was identified by the people in, Tennessee, in West Tennessee, and this was in 1864, April of 1864, was identified by the people there who were mostly Confederate sympathizers as, hey, this is a nest of people that are performing uh, theft, murder, they're burning uh, uh, burning houses, et cetera, et cetera. Could you please clean it out? This is too forced. So as his last act before he went back to Mississippi, uh, he, he, he was up there recruiting and getting his, letting his people visit home. Uh, so as his last act, he uh, went over to do that. He uh, sent, sent, sent a, uh, about 1,500 people there. Okay, uh, the garrison of the, of the fort saw them coming, and they retreated. Uh, the, the U.S. Colored Troops stayed in the fort right above the river. The 13th Tennessee actually stayed uh, about a quarter-mile straight-line distance in front of them. Uh, when Chalmers, who was for a subordinate, got there, he set up, uh, basically surrounded it and did a recon. Then when Forrest got there in the morning, he also did a reconnaissance. Now, Chalmers had put people, uh, snipers, on high ground, and they had actually killed uh, the fort commander, a uh, Major Booth, who was, who was inside the fort. And they killed a bunch of people because, unfortunately, the fort was commanded by higher ground. That is, people, the snipers on higher ground could see what was going on inside there and shoot people moving around. Um, so while Forrest was doing his reconnaissance, his horse was shot from under him and it fell on him and injured him. Okay, not greatly, but, but slightly. Uh, that becomes important in a moment. But anyway, um, so he ordered an attack, Forrest ordered an attack on the outer line where the 13th Tennessee was, which was actually it's called the inner line there because there was a another line of breastworks much further out that they didn't even try to defend. All right, that was taken almost immediately, and the 13th Tennessee retreated back to the fort on the, on the high ground above the river. Okay, at that, now the terrain there is very, uh, what, what you would call highly dissected. That is, there are a lot of ravines and everything like that. Right now, it's highly, it's also very wooded, but at the time, they had cut all the trees down, so there were a lot of visibility, but you couldn't, from the fort, you couldn't see in the ravines. So Forrest had his guys move forward, in some cases, to within 100 yards of the fort itself. 
And then he sent in a flag of truce and offered a surrender. You will be treated as uh, prisoners of war, et cetera, et cetera. While the flag of truce was flying, there was uh, there was some stuff uh, on the river. There were river boats. There had been one gunboat that had been bombarding forest, but with little effect. And there was a, a boat full of troops that was heading in to evidently uh, to reinforce. So Forrest moved some people down to the riverbank uh, to engage them should they try to land. But as soon as they saw people down, or Confederates down there, they sheared off. So anyway, all this was going on during the flag of truce. Uh, the, the second in command, a Major Bradford, sent back uh, kind of an ambiguous message. And Forrest, uh, this won't do. And said, I need a yes or no. And uh, Bradford came back and said, we're not going to surrender. There's a whole backstory behind why he thought he could hold the place. But it, at, any, at any rate, he was mistaken. So Forrest moved back to this high ground a quarter mile away where everybody could hear his bugler and sent the word out, when you hear the bugle, go over the wall. And that's what happened. Uh, Forrest himself, because of his injury and everything, would not arrive into the fort until about between 10 and 15 minutes after the assault had occurred. Okay, the guys who were assaulting uh, had single-shot rifles, as did the people inside, but there were cavalrymen, dismounted cavalrymen, and they had pistols. So they went over the wall and they shot everything inside. Once they got in there, some soldiers, both white and black, some Union soldiers surrendered. And some, the number unknown, uh, were shot down in cold blood. Um, there was a lot of controversy. Later, it was claimed that uh, they had, uh, the, the garrison had cussed out the attackers. That's not abnormal, but it might have made people mad. But this is one of the first times anywhere that the that uh, the U.S. colored troops had actually fought a battle, one of the first. And there were certainly people on the Confederate side that didn't, that, that, uh, that murdered these surrendering soldiers black and white. But as I say, it had been, this was four o'clock in the afternoon, and there had been shooting all day. So a certain number of the casualties certainly were caused by that shooting, and a certain number were caused by when the guys came over the wall. Now, the garrison never surrendered. They retreated down to the riverbank. They did not realize that Forrest had people down there, and so they retreated right into an ambush. Bottom line, 300 more or less of the, of the uh, Union soldiers were killed. Uh, a certain number wounded, and a certain number marched away. Some of the people who were wounded were put on a riverboat the next day and given back to the Union, that is. The unwounded and slightly wounded were marched away as prisoners. That included both black and white troops. There was not an order to slaughter anybody, but it, in the melee it occurred, and also one would have to say because some of the uh, Confederate soldiers went far beyond what they should have and shot down people in cold blood. So all of that happened. Uh, as I say, Forrest didn't really arrive but until 10 or 15 minutes after the, the fort had been overrun. He wasn't even aware of any of these details because 
the the artillery mounted in the fort. Uh, he he was he went over to the parrot, the ten pounder parrot cannon there, and was trying to turn it around to engage the riverboat that had uh, that had been bombarding him all day, and that's what he was paying attention to. Did he ever write about Fort Pillow? Did he ever defend himself, defend his troops? Um, well, personally, uh, he was although he was literate, he was he hated to write things. He would have his staff write things. Um, the Afterwards, all right, this became a big deal, and um, the Union commander in Memphis sent a letter down uh, saying, do you mean to offer no quarter? This is in spite of the fact that half the people did survive. It wasn't a no quarter situation. And uh, he replied, uh, you know, it got kind of ugly, and he replied, says, tell me who you 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 claim uh, kill people in cold blood, and I will prosecute them. And uh, they went back and forth, and cooler heads prevailed on both sides. But I don't think he ever understood or was willing to accept uh, that his guys killed some people in, in cold blood. But that is known. I mean, there's Confederate testimony to that effect. We just don't know how many. It could have been 10 people. It could have been a hundred. It it was nowhere near the total uh, casualty list of three hundred because, as I say, they'd been fighting all day, and then there was an assault, and then as the garrison retreated, there was an ambush at, uh, at right next to the river down there. And uh, as to who died, where, and when, nobody knows anymore. And, and you know, the the congressional committee that met that summer only took testimony from those people who had been wounded and who had been turned over to union custody. You know, they were grievously wounded. And so therefore, uh, and, well, there were uh, their doctor and, and a couple of other people managed to escape and, and, and testify as well. But there was never any real attempt to get to the bottom. Uh, the congressional testimony was primarily election propaganda there were over 40,000 copies of the report sent out right before the election of 1864 as to, to, bolster the, uh, to bolster the Republican cause, really. I mean, that's, that's what happened. Inquiries after the war kind of led more to the, well, you know, things like this happen in war, and uh, no one was, was ever uh, prosecuted. Changing the subject, what was the the most brilliant example of Forrest's generalship? In terms of on the battlefield itself, Bryce's Crossroads was uh, in in June June tenth, eighteen sixty four. He met with uh, something like forty five hundred people total, uh, most of which didn't arrive on the battlefield until uh, later in the day. Uh, he met and defeated a mixed experienced force of cavalry and infantry and artillery of over 7,000. And he managed to not only defeat them, he captured their artillery and many of their personnel. I mean, uh, but it was a close run thing. And I, you know, there are things out there that are, there are people out there that say, well, he had planned this the whole, the whole way and he had outsmarted the guy. 
But uh, I think part of it was his guys fought well, and the Union forces were mishandled pretty severely. Now, as far as, as his impact on the war, these are lesser-known things. The behind, behind Buell's lines that I already talked about in 1862, I think, you know, had the effect of delaying the outcome of the year, uh, of the war for a year. And another one that happened in February of 64, before Fort Pillow, uh, Sherman was hoping to move all the way into Alabama, take Selma, and then take Mobile from behind. But Forrest defeated his cavalry force under Suey Smith, and uh, even though he was outnumbered two to one, and sent Suey Smith running back to Memphis, and uh, that's basically saved not only Mobile, the port of Mobile, but a a lot of the fertile land that was feeding Joe Johnson's army in Mississippi, and our well, his, his army was in Georgia. But the fertile land that was feeding him was in Mississippi and Alabama, and it saved that land from destruction. Sherman had planned to do something like his march through Georgia as early as February of 1864 by cutting across Mississippi and Alabama. And it it came to naught because Forrest defeated his cavalry. And he didn't feel, Sherman did not feel good about uh, going forward. Was Forrest ever considered for a larger command? The largest command he ever had was he had command of all the cavalry in Mississippi, Alabama, and East Louisiana in 1865. Uh, That amounted to 10,000 people. Um, However, because of, there were six different Union threats from six different directions. So he had to disperse his men. Well, also it was winter, so he had to feed them and you had to disperse them to feed them. But he had to disperse his men and could never concentrate them. The most he ever had in his command concentrated was during the Nashville campaign. He he started off with between five and 6,000 cavalry. He was never considered for higher command. You know, he didn't have the quote advantages, unquote. He was he could read, but his writing was, was terrible. He had no self-confidence in his writing. His method of talking, his accent, his, his, uh, the words that he chose to use were backcountry. And therefore, a lot of people uh, discounted him because of that. It's more than 150 years after the Civil War. Why is it important to to study the battle and campaigns of of General Forrest? Well, I think there's a lot to be learned uh, in terms of not tactics per se. Uh, Obviously, tactics have evolved quite a bit. But if you think about the next level uh, above tactics, which is in the Army nowadays, it's called operational art. Operational art really hasn't changed at the ground combat level. Now, obviously, we have air and naval forces uh, quite a bit more integrated nowadays. But in terms of ground maneuver at the higher level, not in contact with the enemy, but to shape what's going on, there's a lot that can be learned from the Civil War written large 
in, uh, in operational art. The forms of maneuver have not changed. If you look at, uh, say, Desert Storm, uh, Desert Storm, the plan, General Frank's plan, looks partic- uh, pretty much like, uh, say, the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863. There's a, a, there's a lot to be learned from that. Now, in terms of Forrest in particular, I think you can learn not his detailed tactics, but more of some of what you might call his maxims. Is, is when, for instance, uh, he would say, and I, I'm going to use a little bit of his vernacular, when you see the enemy, give him a dare. What that means is hit him as soon as you see them. Why? You're establishing that you're on the initiative. You're making him, the, him, the enemy, think that there's more of you there than there probably are, and be a little bit wary. When you got a, uh, when you got them on the run, keep the scare on. You know, obviously pursuit. He would say, hit them on the end, which is nothing more than what we call an envelopment. You know, he maneuvered against the enemy's rear. Now, why is all this important? War is fundamentally a matter of human will. That's the real basis. Now, what do you think the soldiers would think? They're sitting here fighting Forrest Cavalry, and they already know he's, he's got a reputation as, as a brilliant commander. And then suddenly you hear firing from an unexpected direction, maybe even behind you. What's the moral effect on you and your uh, comrades, you know, well, number one, you're afraid to get that. Hey, they're behind us or they're from an unexpected place. We may be surrounded. We don't want to be surrounded. We don't want to have to surrender. And the second part of that thought is, uh, how did they get back there? This guy we're facing is obviously a lot smarter than my commander is because my commander let them uh, surround us. You know, uh, that loss of confidence is the, the, the morale factor is the most important component. And he understood the human uh, tendency to be afraid and he took advantage of it at every opportunity. And that, I think, is the tactical lesson that you would learn from Forrest. The name of the book, The Battles and Campaigns of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, the author, General Uh John Scales. General Scales, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. Uh, Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be asked about the book. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? 
These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Me too. Now, I know, you know, every once in a while somebody complains there's not enough estate planning on the show. Well, listen, if you email us more questions, we'll spend more time about estate planning. He can be a little persnickety with the questions. Be careful. Don't say too much about yourself or your family because we don't want the, the questions to be obviously about any particular people. And if the most interesting questions are the ones that are maybe a little bit more complicated, so feel free to send in something that's got some some meat to it. Chris Cordani, where do they contact us with the email questions? Well, that's easy. It's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's your email address, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And now, you know, I know we have a Twitter page, which I have absolutely no idea what goes on it. <laughs> But Facebook, how does somebody like us there? Just go to your Facebook page, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors, and just like it. There's a, there's, a, there's a little button that says like this or just like. You click the little thumbs up thing and you're there. You'll like it. Okay. Now, why should somebody like our Facebook page? For a lot of reasons. One, they can see a beautiful face behind the microphone. Huh. Secondly, they can find out more about the Connors and Sullivan seminars. They can find out who's on the air, who was on the air, and you can catch some of our interviews, the classic interviews from the YouTube channel. We put direct links right on our Facebook page. You know, at the end of the show, Matt's going to read off our seminar times and places. So if you want to attend one of our seminars, please feel free. You have to give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We want to know how many people are going to be there. Very rarely are we sold out, so to speak. We are occasionally. Sometimes we get a little cramped. Sometimes we get a little cramped. We want to know how to set up the room. Do we have tables in the room? Do we have to take the tables out because there's so many people there? Are we, you know, it's an afternoon seminar. Maybe not that many people go to. We can spread out a little bit more. Have to have enough water and coffee. Right. So just give us an idea of, of how many people are there. We're going to be doing seminars in Manhattan. 
Staten Island the end of June, July, we're going to be in Brooklyn, in two or three places in Brooklyn. At least two, we're working on a third to place. To be determined. Right. But if you have any questions about how to ask your house from your, from let's say from the parents to the children, come to the seminars. We'll try to answer your questions. Or you don't really have to wait for a seminar if you want. If you want to call for an appointment, give us a call again at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Now, next week on the show, we're going to have somebody that's a little different. One of those old character actors from TV in the That I had a crush on. Another guy I had a crush on. Yeah, Clue Galuger. And it's kind of a weird name, but um, I think he did something like 500 movies and TV shows, including he's talking to us about one movie he did with, of all people, Lee Marvin (laughs) and Ronald Reagan in the same movie. And there was an interesting dynamic. So I don't think if you're interested in Hollywood history, you want to hear Clue next week. Now, he's about 90 years old. So 90 I mean, we, plus now, right? Yeah, we have a habit of looking for people that are not dead yet, so to speak, to put on our <laughs> to put on our show. But we like old timers. Right. And Clue's going to be on next week. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Again, we should be on the same times next week. If you want an appointment at our office, give us a call at 718 718- 238-6500-718-238-6500. I think Mr. Kincaid is telling us to go home. Time to go. Bye-bye, everybody. friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on Tuesday, June 25th at the Three West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.